Are you waiting for everything to be perfect before you decide to enjoy life? Stop waiting. Start living. Welcome to Life in 22 Minutes with Scott and Becky McIntosh, where you will hear inspiring stories from imperfect people living life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love, despite challenging circumstances to bring hope to your heart and a smile to your face in only 22 minutes. Now, let's welcome the host of the show, Scott and Becky McIntosh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Life in 22 Minutes. I am your host, Scott McIntosh. My co-host, Becky, is right here with me. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited for Scott to introduce our guest. We just had an argument of who was going to introduce to. him, but and he won. We arm wrestled. Yep, I win. <laughs> so our guest today is Moses Masoy. He is the executive director of 100 Humanitarians in Kenya. He is a humanitarian, a naturalist, and a safari guide on the Maasai Mara. He is a brilliant mentor and coach with mad skills and technology. He's a warrior with a heart of gold and loves serving his people, especially working with women and children. He is married with two daughters who have him wrapped around their little fingers. His favorite food is rice and traditional Kenyan dishes. So you are a Maasai? Yeah. Hello, everyone. This is Moses Masoi from Maasai Mara. Uh, as you've heard from Scott, I am of a Maasai tribe that lives in Kenya. It's still the icon of the Maasai and the African traditions. I am a humanitarian, a safari guide, and a naturalist, just to sum up what I do. He is amazing. I met Moses in Kenya last November. Actually, I met you a little before that when you came to America. And, and then I got to see you in your homeland. And you just light up there. <laughs> it was so fun to see you in your element, in your country, and with your, your people. I love being in my comfort zone, and uh, Africa and Kenya is uh, really part of my heart and part of my soul. That's why I love being there, and uh, that's why we're doing all this for those people there. And if you could explain to people what is a Maasai warrior, What's, what does it mean to be Maasai? A Maasai warrior is a man or a woman, sometimes, born of the Maasai tribe, trained in the cultures and the traditions of the Maasai tribe, went through the practices and the rites of passage of the Maasai tribe and also has earned his name in the community by doing service to the people and also ensuring that he's upheld or she has upheld the dignity and the cultural and heritage values of the Maasai tribe. That is in your daily life, in your actions, in raising up of your kids, and everything. This is a tribe that has, for most part of the years, migrated through uh, northern Africa through Egypt and currently settled in the southern part of Kenya, a tribe that has always lived on mainly cows, depending on their milk, meat, and blood for their daily lives. A tribe that believes that all cows in the world belong to them because they believe that God sent them on a hide of a cow from heaven and gave them all the land to graze their cows and all the cows. So they would go raiding every community in Kenya taking back the cows because they believe that all the cows belong to them. So being a Maasai is really, to me, considered a privilege, and I love being Maasai. It's one of the greatest gifts that God gave me to be able to live in this community, a community that believes in love and believes in the bind that 
puts people together. You can see the Masai colors are mostly red because they believe that the red color represents the blood which binds the people together. And also you've seen the construction and the structure of the Maasai hearts. They are in a circular shape, which ensures that the love is like love going round and round and there's no end to love. It's always circulating around all of us. I love so that's that. that's being Maasai. Yeah. I just learned something new. I didn't realize that their, their huts are built in a, in a circle. You've okay. been there, Becky. I have been there, but I didn't realize the meaning behind that. Oh, so yeah. that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, maybe that's my bad. I didn't explain when we were there. <laughs> <laughs> Moses is also our tour guide when we're there. He drives the, the Jeep. And Scott is going with us this year to, to Kenya in November. And I'm so excited for him to meet the people and to take in the beauty of, of Kenya. I'm excited. I think it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be awesome um, doing safaris and also... Um, uh, when we started this, we were uh, thinking of having uh, humanitarian safaris or tourism or humanitarianism, which is a combination of tourism which most people go to Kenya or in the Mara as photographic tourists or just as people going on vacation. But uh, we wanted to combine the two together, photographic tourism or for people who love nature or want to go sightseeing and seeing the wildlife on safari, but also include the aspect of doing charity work in the society and giving back to the community. That's wonderful. You, you touched on what a um, Maasai was. It sounds like a very pure people. The, uh, do, you, do you try to keep the tribe pure or is it okay to... The traditions? Yeah, tr- yeah, the traditions. Or is it okay for somebody to marry from another tribe or do you, is it frowned upon? Do you try to keep the, the Maasai pure? Well, a lot has changed, but customarily, you are not supposed to get married uh, from another tribe. But over the years, the Maasai have intermingled with other tribes. They have neighboring tribes that are their close neighbors, and uh, they have been trying to make peace with the other neighbors because initially the Maasai were known for being fierce warriors who were no-nonsense and would go to any community, kill people, get their cows. So... Many tribes in Kenya really feared the Maasai. So in a bit to try to make peace, it's always uh, in the African tradition to give a daughter or a marriage is a token of appreciation and also asking for peace. So over the years, the Maasai tried, uh, started um, intermarrying with other tribes uh, as a way of making peace. But you'll still find out that uh, the Maasai being uh, from uh, polygamous uh, lifestyles, you are allowed to marry from another tribe in some cases, but still have one or three Maasai wives. Okay, so that's still practiced now, today? Uh, Currently, it is really minimal. Uh, The Maasai culture, as we know, is not as it was when we were born or even when our parents lived. The culture is being uh, uh, rapidly changed and eroded by different aspects, Uh, education being a key role in the changing of the Maasai traditions and the way of life. Uh, religion and the practice of Christianity and also the constant influence of uh, civilization and the influx of tourists coming in and out of the Maasai lands. Mm. So because so the Maasai, when they're dressed in tribal clothes, it's very colorful. Uh, they have a lot of beads and a lot of jewelry and, and a, a lot of really just loud, vibrant colors and, and, and mm-hmm. things. 
And so is that the typical dress now, or do you just dress in modern clothes now while you're there, or do you dress in tribal? The master used to dress in uh, a skin of a goat or a sheep, where when they slaughter a sheep or a goat, they would remove the hair from the skin, soften it by soaking it in water and then smearing cow oil on top of it to ensure that it can prevent water from getting into your body or also help in uh, keeping you warm. And uh, that was the mode of dressing for all those years. And they would use a certain kind of rock called the red ochre, which they would grind, add water, and smear it to make the skin look red, which was ideal for them because when they went cattle raiding or they went in the bushes looking after cows, it was easier to identify someone in red in a bush full of green. So during the colonial period in Kenya, the British did not get so much resistance from the Maasai because the Maasai ideally are always a pastoral community which is moving from very often from one place to another, not ever making permanent settlements because they were always moving in search of pasture for their cows. So when the colonialists were finding places where they could do their agriculture, they loved the Maasai because they did not have permanent settlement like other tribes in Kenya. The other tribes in Kenya had permanent settlement and they resisted being moved from their residential areas or their ancestral lands. But for the Maasai, they moved everywhere and they did not resist being told to move to pave way for either agriculture or creation of roads or railways. So the British went back to Scotland and they brought the Maasai the current dressing, which are the Scottish materials. And they thought that as a token of appreciation and thank you to the Maasai, they give to the Maasai elders and a few women. And the Maasai realized that the clothings were much nicer. They were red, like the normal red skins that they used to wear. And it was less cumbersome and easy to wash and uh, also less bulky and more comfortable than they wore. So that's where the current dressing was introduced. We would always find a few people who can dress in jeans or shirts, depending on the occasion. But if there is any traditional occasion going on, most of the people there will be dressed in traditional master clothes with the jewelry, which is always made by the women. Either your sisters, your mom, or your girlfriend, or your wife would make jewelry to you to just make you look presentable. And the jewelry rhyme with the music because when the master is singing, the jingling sound provides an accompaniment to the music that they are playing. Yeah, wow, that is awesome. So the Scottish had a... Because I noticed all the the clothes are, are mostly plaid, the the checkered color or checkered plaid. Hmm. Yeah. But before that, it was skins. It was skins. And so you would, they would tan them themselves. Does do does a Maasai now know how to tan a hide? Yeah, yeah. we do, still have specialists and people who still practice that. Do you brain do brain tans or what do you do? To remove the hair, and then they would use sticks to tan it to make it soft. And to make it soft again, and pliable. From the cow. And the oil from the cow. Mm-hmm. And the oil makes it waterproof. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. So you are, are here in America right now in, in Utah, to be more specific, yeah. with the 100 humanitarians yes. and doing fundraising. Mm-hmm. Kind of tell us about that and what the funds, what are you, what are you fundraising for? Um, uh, I have been a safari guide in Kenya and in Tanzania for pretty much most of my life, uh, for 10 years now or maybe 15, I can remember well. And um, over the years, I realized that the Maasai community being a tribe 
that has been really marginalized by the government since there were no development records going on in the Maasai area because the government always thought that the Maasai were rich, they have so many cows, and the Maasai just want to continue living their traditional lifestyles. And kind of the government just thought that the Maasai did not deserve to get civilized or get some good health, good roads, because they are the image of tradition in Kenya. And I realized that it was wrong because I did my research in the local area and most of the schools that were built, good schools that we have there, have come from outside donors, either from America, Japan, Canada, or somewhere. If we have a good hospital, it's come from external donors. And as this is going on, as the government is trying to force the Maasai to keep on living their traditions and shun the ways of civilization and development, the Maasai, like any other tribe, is really turning away from their traditional way of life and new practices are coming up that are totally different and against the tradition that the Maasai really had. And I realized that something should be done. To you know, If we cannot prevent this, then we should protect what we can, while we still can. And uh, I realized that we do not have anywhere that we can call a place that I can go and retrieve Maasai knowledge on their tradition, their culture, their practices, their old stories, their games, the singing games that the kids used to, uh, to be told on the campfire, uh, the parables, the legends. And uh, when we started working with the 100 humanitarians, it was because first I thought that I did a lot of being a safari guide. And always, even when I was doing my safari guiding, I always tried to train people that I was guiding as a guide on the many attributes that we can get from various animals. They have life skills that we can apply in our own lives. We can look at the enduring wildlife who endure a lot of challenges, miles of running and crossing the Mara River to be able to run to Kenya, to Tanzania. The organization of the elephants, uh, of the lions, I mean, the communication of the elephants, the fast and speedy cheetah, entrepreneurial uh, or opportunistic crocodile. And there is a lot that we can learn from these animals. And I realized that we can take this to the community back teach them this because they can relate to these animals because they know them, they have been around them. The Maasai Mara is the only national reserve that is not fenced because the government, of course, knows that the Maasai do not eat game meat and the animals can move in and out of the park without having any conflict with the Maasai. But we've had our own fair share of wildlife and human conflict. So when we come with the 100 humanitarians, uh, I had this dream and vision of having a cultural center where the cultural center can help us preserve the remaining culture of the Maasai, either by taking stories, doing interviews with the elderly in our society, collecting narratives, stories and practices, collecting as traditional artifacts and uh, original ornaments from the Maasai and be able to store them in a place where the future generation can retrieve, either via computers or there can be books and stuff like that. And uh, because I realized that as much as we want to move away from the traditions that were not doing any good to us or were not meaningful to us, like the aspects of uh, female genital mutilation, early marriages, and also the idea of not giving a girl child enough opportunity to express themselves, to get education, to get a say in the society, and also participate in decision-making in the society. There are very many important values of our tradition that we must preserve. And uh, the cultural center is going to help in ensuring that as we introduce the peop these people to better lifestyles, business skills, 
new ways of living like the garden boxes. The Maasai are known not to practice agriculture, but right now women in the villages are growing crops, vegetables. They can have a balanced diet for their kids. They are providing them with chicken where they can get eggs, they can get milk from the cow we provide, they can get vegetables. And also by mentoring that family, we are associating families in the U.S. to mentor families in Kenya, and they can share the traditions. And as this family learns the new ways of life, we are also ensuring that they preserve their own traditions. We are not trying to turn them all into white people or Westerners. We want them to remain as Maasai as possible, but get away from the traditions that are not doing them any good, but preserve and teach their children the traditions that are important, like respect, love, the importance of life, the importance of coexistence, the importance of cooperation. Everything in the Maasai was done in a communal way. When I was growing up, I could do something stupid out in the bushes. Anyone, even a passerby or a foreigner, I do not even know, would get me, whip me so well, and let me go. I would run to my parents and like, oh, someone I do not know gave me a beating in the bushes. Oh, I did nothing wrong. My dad would do the same thing and take me back to the stranger and thank him. <laughs> thank you for it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, uh, so it takes a village to uh, raise yeah, a family. It took a, a village and the whole society to raise a child because I would not sit there just watching a kid mess. Even if it's not my kid, it's my responsibility to ensure that that child is raised well. So we are trying to cultivate a culture of having local role models, local motivational speakers, and inspirational people who can be an inspiration and motivation to the kids growing up. We've gone through a culture that most of the kids that are growing up right now did not go through. The trainings we had, many of the kids that we have right now did not go through. And we want to bring these local mentors of both girls and boys to the society, to that cultural center, where this girl can share her story to the society. Of course, the parents there relate to her because they know that this is a child that has been born and raised in this village. She went to school, graduated. Now she's working. She's a career woman. Whether, and she did not go through FGM. So yeah, FGM is not as important anyway. You do not have to put your child through FGM for the child to realize that she's a woman now. And let's tell our audience what FGM stands he, he, for. He said it earlier, um, female genital, genital mutilation. And it's a process yes. where the girls were put through just as a sign of telling them that they are now women. They can now they are now adults for that matter. And just like the boys, when you are circumcised you are told like now you're a man. You now And you're decisions. circumcised when you are a teenager. Yeah, the boys go through that at around the age of fifteen to seventeen. And before yeah. before we get right into let's let's go through the whole life of a of a Maasai male. Okay. A male is born a little baby and at what ages does he have different things happen to become a man? Well, uh, if you put it that way, it's going to be a lifelong two twenty-two minutes in a life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know yeah, they do yeah. some certain well, things. Uh, uh, given birth, uh, you are named and blessed and welcomed into the society through blood and milk. And uh, there is a celebration and a feast to welcome a new member of the society. From that age to around the age of five, you're mostly with your mom and maybe could rarely spend time with your father. Maybe you would join your grandma's house to hear stories. And then most of us, like most of the kids, grandmas always try to spoil them as much as they can. They have small little special cards or calabashes that they would store some special milk that they cannot give to anyone else until the grandchild arrives. But at, from the age of five, you start going out looking after the small sheep and 
cults and uh, as you start learning how to bring them back home and you also start learning where your family land is so that you don't drive your cows or sheep to another different family land which could cause conflict so at age five at age five I, uh, between, I between saw the, a lot between, of children yeah, in yeah. the in the mm-hmm. fields with yeah. their their sticks yeah, and walking sticks. around yeah. and yeah, gathering the animals you'd have your elder brothers then to help you through that and then from the age of nine you start now going through the painful and hard stuff to prepare you for circumcision and to be a man at the age of nine you have your two teeth pulled with a knife. The two teeth pulled on the bottom, Mm -hmm. okay, at age nine. At age nine, you are supposed to remain calm, not cry, not flinch. And then if you go through that successfully, always your dad would give you two cows, your mom would give you three cows for the show of bravery. Uh, From the age of 12 all the way to the age of 17, when you are now circumcised, you'll go through other rigorous training uh, where you'll go through pain, you'll go through branding, where you'll put a stick in fire and just place it on your skin to brand yourself and there will be other bodies. That's the scar on your, yeah, on your hand? Yeah, and also over mm-hmm. here. So you, you may have mm-hmm. seen that a lot. Yep. And uh, that's between the age of 12 to 13. And um, you, that, do, you do multiple brandings? Yeah, multiple. All over your body if you want to show as much as possible how brave you are. And the other boys will be there watching. So Also, this gives your family courage that when the big day comes for circumcision, you not make them shameful of you. So between 13 and 14, you have your ear pierced. They cut the, your earlobe in front of the community and also pierced your top ear, the pinna. Uh, people like me who went to school, the school had strict rules that you cannot come with so many brandings or you come with your ears pierced, you have to go back uh, home and forget about school. So you had to choose between tradition and education. And... Uh, then the government had a rule that one child in every family must go to school. So your dad would say, like, all right, you are not going through the piercing and the branding because I want you to stay in school. Or if you don't stay in school, the, family, the government will bring issues. So after that, when you heal after that, you go for camps, boot camps for their young warriors, go with the elders and they learn the killing of the lion, uh, hunting, they're taking care of the cows, you learn how to throw spears, how to shoot arrows, and how to protect your family in case of an invasion. Just a sec. Let's go back to the killing of the lion. Mm. Every male has to kill a lion. Initially, it was like that. You had to kill a lion to prove that you are ready to get circumcised. So right now, it's not like that. The Maasai warriors are now educated to be safari guides and conservationists who are protecting these wild animals, so we do not encourage and that practice has been cut off to ensure that we have enough lions left for uh, people to, oh, that's to ensure the lions. Yeah, but then but they killed a lion with a spear. Yeah, you'd kill a lion with a spear. You'd be accompanied by your peers. They would surround the lion, and then you'd be asked to go. Then it will be up to you to find the easiest way to kill it by piercing it to a part that you know it would uh, disable it to allow you to cut the throat or to allow the other other warriors to join you and help you in killing it. But you have to be the first person to spear the lion. Wow, and so there had to have been a lot of people killed. Uh, Of course, there has been various and uh, many uh, uh, victims of that. And uh, also many lions died in the process. Right. Yeah. So sad on both sides. Yeah. So mm-hmm. on both sides, they have always been victims. So after the killing of the lion, now you're ready to be circumcised. There will be a small feast at home that you're ready. Your dad will be there. Then the big day comes and you have to go through the process in front of everyone. Not really about how you can kind of just block the pain away and uh, try to 
assume that you are in any pain and just be so you have you have to show focus <laughs> there is intense focus and over the years we've been trained to, to, to block go through out that pain, pain. block out that pain and then during that day there is a lot of mockery and like you're mocked and the whole society is there telling you that if you flinch or if anything like you cannot even move your eyebrows through the whole wow. thing there's no anesthesia there's no nothing and can sometimes it takes five minutes and, uh, that and is, is this just done with a knife or yeah. with a razor blade or with a knife? With a knife. Is yeah. this still a practice that's going on today at this age? Mm, it is going on in some parts, but uh, for most of the people going through that right now, there are trained Maasai uh, people who do that. And uh, for most of them, they use anesthesia now. They are hygienic. They use different scalpels or knives for different individuals. Initially, one knife could be used to circumstance up to 2,000 people. Wow. Wow. And so, and once that happens, once that circumcision happens and you don't if you flinch do, and you, you do... not flinch, there is a big feast. Several bulls will be slaughtered. There is a dancing and a ceremony is held for a day or two and everyone celebrates with you. But if you flinch, you'll be cast away and put in separation. You'll be isolated for about... Uh, two months while you heal and uh, when you heal and you go straight to being an elder you are not allowed to join the moranism or the warriorhood because they say you're a coward mm -hmm. you cannot be an elder because you cannot take part in decision makings you are termed to be of blemish so you cannot participate in any sacrifice making or any prayers that the society makes finding a wife will also be very difficult because no parent want to give their child to be married off to someone who did who was a coward. Who was a coward. Oh, so I mean, those there's a lot resting on. Yeah, this. there is a lot of risk in going through that. So yes. really, like if your whole life is at, at stake. For that. Your day. whole life prepares for that day, yeah. and that day means everything. means everything. If you if you get through that without flinching and without showing any pain or any tears, you then the you're a man. You are a man. You join the warriors. After the warriors, you have become an elder. After being an elder or an adult, you can be easily become a chief, you can get married, and you start living life. Wow, And that's also when amazing. the other warriors would go out uh, to, because maybe many of the warriors do not inherit cows from their parents, you have to go raid another community to get some cows. So when the other warriors would go uh, raiding for cows as their own wealth, the person who flinched during the circumcision does not, is not allowed to go and is not allowed to join. So either he chooses to go alone by himself, which is really risky, mm. and many have died because he says, they are like, what else is there to lose? And mm -hmm. I'd just rather go die there than remain here and be ridiculed all the time. And uh, when people were having a feast and sometimes the old men get drunk or something, don't miss an opportunity of ridiculing one of their peers who flinched. Even wow. if this thing is like, oh, so and so flinched. It hangs with them forever. Yeah, so like oh. that thing is there forever. So, so a guy could be 45, 50 years old and somebody still brings it up. That, yeah, that and that is the place. culture that we want to break because it's mm -hmm. not helping. Um, right. uh, the Maasai have been trained to block a lot of their emotions. Maasai men are like stones. They mm. don't feel anything. They don't cry. Mm. They are not vulnerable. And this has kept them to not enjoy life, not feel life, mm. the emotions that they change. Mm. And also they have also had in their own feelings that the feelings that they have for women, like how they treat women, is really attributed to the training they had. They treat women like just trash, like they are servants. Like mm. your wife would die today and you're like, oh, that's okay, move on. Wow. People mm. do not take time to mourn yeah. their wives. Do not, they would mourn their 
peers who they were in the Morani team together, they would mourn their friends or their dad, but not mourn their wives. They've been known to just live like animals, so to say, and they do not have any feeling of this is not kind, this is not loving. They don't spend as much time as they do should with their families, of course. They are trying to protect them and all that. Mm. But then we are, with the cultural center, we are going to have boot camps from young men who are preparing to come from the boyhood into young adults where they can learn all these traditions, the important aspects of our tradition, and also teach them that this, what we used to do in the traditional way and in the past age, is not good anymore. It's not helping us. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to show your emotions if you are sad, if you are uh, feeling something, you're feeling like you're vulnerable, you're feeling weak. It's okay, you're human. You don't always have to show your moralism, your warriorism inside of you. And this leaves many things to pass you because you are trying to block everything that gets in the way of you being a moran or a warrior. And uh, that aspect is going to help them uh, graduate from being a boy to being a modern Maasai warrior. There Not a go. traditional Maasai yeah. warrior. A modern Maasai warrior who knows the importance of education, who knows the role that women play in our society, knows the role that other communities that are neighboring us play in our well-being, and understands the importance of having girls, whether they are their sisters, their aunts, or other girls in the society, that they have rights, they have equal opportunities, they are just as smart as them in classes. And in this bootcamp, we've also introduced an alternative right of passage for the girls. So instead, I'm working with another organization called Carter Cuts and uh, Nashipa Kinoi Motivational Group, which is a group of young Maasai women who are coming together to first train the parents that, hey, look here, I did not go through FGM. My dad chose to educate me. Right now, I've done this and this for my family. I've done this and this. I'm a career woman. You are girl can go through the same process. Instead of you putting her through circumcision or early marriage, she can get education and she'll be someone important in the future. That girl can come back and be a pillar to your family, a pillar to the society. So that group and the Cut the Cut organization, we are, we've introduced alternative rites of passage for the girls also, where they are trained by Maasai women, mentors from the other tribes, these young mentors who are girls from their society who are role models on life skills, how to take care of your husband, how to take care of your kids, how to dress yourself, how to push forward for your rights as a girl, how to ensure that you do better in school and in the society. And after three weeks, these girls graduate knowing that, huh, I am a woman now. My mom can travel for a few days and leave the rest of the kids in my responsibility and she can come back not find the house on fire, find that the mm-hmm. kids are doing well. Mm-hmm. My brothers and my younger sisters are well fed. I have prepared their cows. I, I can now, I know how to milk. I know how to take care of the animals. I know how to prepare a meal for my dad if he's hungry. So those important aspects are, are what the cultural center really is going to try to work on, uh, empowering the women, empowering the girls, and also being a reconciliation center where we can reconcile the families. In most cases, parents would be remorseful of getting back the kids who run away. We have many girls who run away from early marriages mm-hmm. and circumcision or female genital mutilation, and that leaves a bitter feeling with the parents where they feel that their kids disobeyed them, their kids are running away from the traditions, and they do not understand, yes, because 
the mom went through the same process. Their aunts went through the same process, and they don't feel anything wrong with circumcision. They don't feel anything wrong with being married off early. Most of them did not even know their husbands. They met their husband during their wedding day. Mm. They were like, oh, wow. this is your wedding day. Oh, who am I marrying? Oh, this is your husband. All right, mm. get off, go home. And they, most people do not know that life is different now. And a parent would like, why is my child running away from a marriage that is organized by her dad? Why is my child running away from FGM? They do not understand because they are not educated mm-hmm. and uh, they do not know that this know is wrong. Or a different yeah, life. or a different life. Mm-hmm. So the cultural center will help in reconciling both parties, the parents and the girl, informing the girl that, okay, your parents were not wrong. They were just practicing a lifestyle that they are used to. We have an opportunity here to educate them that, okay, it was okay in their time, but it's no longer okay in this era. The things are different. And also, you need to know that these you are, are your parents. You can run away, you can go to a better school, you can go to a rescue center, but this will remain your parents. And uh, we would want to reconcile the two parties. As time goes by, the child heals, start knowing that these are my parents. And also, the parents realize that maybe we'll bring these girls from the motivational groups to teach them that they are girls that these parents know definitely because they come from the society. Like, okay, I did not go through FGM. My parents did not marry me off. I went to school, and this is me now. And, ma- and married somebody they loved. Yeah, and married someone they loved. Or at some point, even these girls who go to school, actually, most of them, as a thank to their parents, come back and like, Dad, I went through school. You educated me. I'm through school. I have a career now. I'm ready to get married. If you want to marry me off, it's okay. If you want me to choose my own spouse, it's okay. And the parent, mm-hmm. in most cases, would say, I do not want to choose. You choose whoever you want, bring him home. If it's someone that you choose, I'm okay, happy with that. So the girls kind of feel like he's made their parent proud by at least remembering that it's traditional for your dad yeah. to pick your spouse. You're giving them that opportunity. But then most parents, because they understand the importance of education, they would still also understand the importance of you choosing your life partner. So reconciling these two parties, building that harmony and that peace and uh as we try softly move our t- community from these retrogressive practices, we are also trying to enhance their knowledge on their current affairs, on how life is right now, and the importance of allowing the children to live according to their life right now. And, and when you, just to clarify, when you speak of um, female, female mutilization, genital mutilization, and then you, you also call it circumcision for women or for girls, you are... And you're mentioning, or not mentioning, but we're, we're going to clarify that, that that means that you're taking apart the, the female parts that make um, sex enjoyable. Is that correct? I think uh, they cut off most part of the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, the whole idea was uh, the master wanted to reduce promiscuity. Mm-hmm. It was a way of men trying to make women feel bad about themselves, to subdue the women to make them submissive to men and uh, mm. just crush every little feeling they have uh-huh. of them, themselves. And the bad thing is that men do not circumcise women or do not practice FGM on women. It is women who do that to other women. Mm. And, of course, wow. they realize what they are doing, but they still do it. Mm. But I don't think it's a good thing. And I, now it's against the law. It is against that in the Kenya, law. But it's still going on. It is against yeah. the law, of course. And... Uh, if you are found doing practicing it, you go through 
very serious uh, life sentences and sometimes even lengthy sentences in prison. But then, in the Maasai community, how is the government going to help in stopping that when right. the area chief is a Maasai who went, right. whose family is going through FGM? Mm-hmm. Most of the police officers are Maasai who know the practices and, of course, they are sisters or their parents went through that. The so the laws are being are enforced. So how can you enforce right. that law if the people who are supposed to enforce the law are, are traditional men and who yeah. do not mind the practice going on? So so as a leader in this, in this movement, to hang on to the traditions that are crucial to hang on to, but try to eliminate the things that are very detrimental to your tribe, yeah. in doing that, you have to be met with conflict. There has to be some... Uh, traditionalists who yeah. are, are upset with Moses right now because of what you're trying to do? They, I have met with several, but then uh, what I've always tried to do, and it has worked for me, is uh, be a role model. Show the image you want every other Maasai to show. I have gone experienced different cultures where I've been to various countries, I've been in the U.S. severally, I've been in tables with people who are of different religions, different practices, but that has never changed my tradition of being a Maasai. It has never changed who I am. I've always realized that I am Maasai. When I am in America, probably I would behave like an American. But when I go back to my village, I act just like a normal, traditional man. There are things that I would say that I'm against this thing and I'll not do that. But any other practice that is being practiced by my peers, by the locals in that society, I take part in it. And I, I have pride in doing that. When I am in my society, I dress just like them. Being part of them and being inside their traditions is a better way of bringing them out of bad ways than trying to live a totally different life and having people emulate you. It's better when you are part of their tradition so that you can show them that, hey, I'm doing this, but I know there is something better. There is something that you can do better. And uh, this, when these young men grow up, I want them to look up to me as a role model. That, yeah, I've traveled, I've gone to school, I have my degree, I have my education, but that has not changed me. That has not changed the Moses I am, who was born and raised in this village. That's what I witnessed when I was there, that you were a leader. You were looked up to. In every village that we visited, the people love you. They admire you. They respect you. Yes. Well, Moses, it's been a delight having you on our show, and we could go on and on and on and on and keep talking. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you for what you are doing. And anyone who is listening that would like to contribute to the Cultural Center, um, you can go to 100humanitarians.com and place a donation there. So thank you, Moses. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And in a couple of months, I'll be seeing you on, in your land. I am looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to you being my guide and letting me take pictures of amazing, cool animals. As long as you're not bringing your guns with you. I have no, no guns, no bow and arrow. We're going to hunt with cameras and see and a lot of neat, sure. neat animals. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. We're going to yeah. do a lot of work. I'm glad that you're bringing your muscles with you. You're going to do some good in the society and also enjoy a lot of peace, laughter, and cohesion. That's awesome. I'm excited. Thank you. Well, thanks, Moses. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I hope you learned something about the Maasai warriors and the the Maasai tribe of Kenya. Thanks for listening to Life in 22 Minutes. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends about us, and please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a review. Your review will help us to broaden our audience. 
Until next time, don't wait for things to be perfect. Get out there and live life with courage, humor, and a whole lot of love.